Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Research. I'm Professor Trish Ray, and this podcast is one of our series from the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. On today's episode, I'm speaking with marketing professor Gerald Hobble, whose research focuses on the psychological forces that govern how people decide what products to buy. And it's important to remember that a significant portion of his research over the years has given particular attention to online environments. Gerald's presence on the international academic stage is impressive. In fact, he recently ranked in the top 40 worldwide list for productivity in premier marketing journals. Gerald's research is based on scientifically rigorous work, and through his studies, he has consistently provided important implications for practical management action. Gerald is truly among the world's thought leaders in consumer behavior, and it's really a pleasure to welcome you here today. Thanks for joining me, Gerald. It's good to be here, Trish. Thanks for having me. Gerald, I'm particularly impressed with your work because you consistently engage in research that is both academically significant and of practical relevance. And perhaps even more important, the takeaway messages arising from your studies resonate for both businesses and consumers. So today, I want to talk about the article you published in 2000 in Marketing Science with your co-author, Valerie Trifts. The title is Consumer Decision-Making in Online Shopping Environments, the Effects of Interactive, Interactive Decision Aids. This article is about online shopping that was an emerging phenomena at the time and has now grown to unprecedented levels, especially during the COVID pandemic. This article has been amazingly well cited over the years, 2,058 citations to date, and really it is clear why people continue to find it so relevant. Sure, I'd be happy to. So maybe I'll start with uh, a few thoughts on what inspired the work in the first place. This research took place in the late 1990s at a time where the commercial internet was just starting to take shape. And it was just around uh, at that time that we recognized that the world of the consumer is really changing and the, 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 the kinds and, and amounts of information that consumers would have available to them was going to be different from, from the way it had been before. It was really a tectonic shift. And the hype was really about um, uh, ease of access to information. Lots of information that is relevant to consumers. Um, would suddenly become available literally at the at, at, at the click of a mouse. Scholars were starting to debate how this might transform markets and how it might transform the way people shop and, and how consumers make make decisions. And um, and one thing that occurred to us, my co-author Valerie and I, was that um, there is there is a positive side and a negative side to this access to information. And the positive side is pretty obvious, and, and few consumers would disagree that having access to more information and, and having faster access to that information is, is a good thing. Um, but what occurred to us is that such huge amounts of information can also be a burden for the consumer. An example of that would be if you, you know, go online and you want to buy, let's say, an espresso maker, and you can find hundreds, if not thousands, of models of espresso makers. What occurred to us is that in order to really harness the power of, of, of the World Wide Web in terms of this access to information, um, 
it would be necessary to equip consumers with intelligent tools, uh, assistive technologies, as we like to call them, to really help them um, make choices in such extremely information-rich environments where you have access to hundreds, if not thousands, of alternatives in many domains, whether it's hotels, cameras, espresso makers, as I said earlier. And so that was sort of the backdrop for, for our research. Can you give us a little example of how that would work with a cappuccino maker? So what kind of decision aids would people be able to get? Great question. So in, 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 in our paper, Valerie and I examined the effectiveness of two particular types of decision aids that we thought would be particularly helpful to consumers. The two things that we focused on were one, something we called a recommendation agent, and I'll, I'll mention, you know, Describe that in a bit more detail in just a second. And the other is a comparison matrix or comparison tool. And so those two um, assistive technologies were inspired by the notion that um, given the, so the first one, recommendation tools, uh, really pertains to um, the issue of given that there's so much information out there, there's so many espresso makers, um, um, and you're not equally interested in all of them as a consumer. You have a particular set of preferences. You might want one that is um, uh, not too large because you have limited counter space, and you want one that makes, um, uh, you know, allows you to make nice foamed milk on, on your on your on your cappuccino, um, and um, and that has you know certain capacity um, aspects to it. And so the point being, you're not equally interested in in all the hundreds of espresso makers out there. You're particularly interested in a small number of them. And wouldn't it be nice if you had a technology that can somehow assess or figure out what, what exactly you're looking for in an espresso maker and then selectively draw your attention to that small number of espresso makers that actually match that preference. So if you could somehow educate this assistive technology about your preferences, it could then show you what you really want to see. Um, and that's the basic intuition behind a, uh, a, a recommendation tool. We now call this technology personalized product recommendations. So the idea that you could basically reconfigure a shopping interface um, and tailor it to the individual needs of a consumer with some knowledge of that consumer's idiosyncratic preference and show that consumer exactly the products that are predicted to be of greatest interest or most attractive. And the second need that we thought existed in that, uh, in that context was, now that, now that I have access to so many alternatives, I need to be able to compare among them, uh, compare the different products that match my preferences. And so we, we um, recognized that um, web-based shopping environments also allow for the provision of comparison tools so that you can essentially select one, one espresso maker you find, um, maybe select the second one and then a third one, and then ask the interface to present them in a, essentially a table uh, format to allow you to more effectively compare them attribute by attribute, feature by feature, um, and facilitate those comparisons among them. So we thought that those two uh, generic types of assistive technologies would be particularly valuable to consumers to navigate these information-rich shopping environments. Well, that certainly turned out to be true. And uh, we've seen um, not only a growth of the online shopping, but a growth of work in your area 
that that builds on those ideas and takes them even further. So I'm wondering, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about how your ideas have moved forward from then. But I have maintained an interest in this domain of consumer technology interaction and the 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 um, how electronic shopping interfaces can assist and guide, but also influence consumers. One area that I've been very in- interested in and very active in in my, in my research is, is what we now call choice architecture. Many products that are available to consumers, um, they have to be presented to the consumer in some way. And not just in electronic shopping environments, even in physical retail environments. If you go to the grocery store, you're entering a shopping environment, uh, your goal is to make a bunch of purchases. Um, and there are many, many alternatives that are, that are available. And those have to be organized in a very particular way. So we call that choice architecture. And, uh, and of course, choice architecture in electronic shopping environments offers a very unique possibility, which is to create a unique choice architecture for every single consumer. So it would be as if you go to your preferred grocery store and the store manager rearranges in real time the entire store for you to make those things that you're particularly interested in most accessible and pushes all the things that you'll never, you'll never want to buy to the background to make your shopping experience more efficient. It sounds, of course, ridiculous in a physical environment and completely infeasible. But in fact, this is happening now um, every day, uh, all the time in, in electronic shopping environments. And this is the idea of personalized shopping interfaces. Um, and it basically takes our notion of personalized product recommendations to a more general level where the entire shopping interface can be personalized, um, tailored to an individual consumer in real time using artificial intelligence and other technologies and, and pulling in data from different sources. That's very interesting. So consumers can now experience tailored choice architectures, but can you share with me just where this personalized data might come from? That could be based on data that you, the consumer, has provided at some point. Maybe the interface asked you to um, share about your preferences, to rate some products, or, or inform the interface about which features are particularly important to you when you're buying uh, or when you're looking for an espresso maker, or booking hotels, or buying cameras. Uh, so that could be one source of information. Another source of information could be the entire purchase history, your entire um, um, past behavior uh, that, uh, that, uh, that you've engaged in. And so that can inform this personalization. And then finally, it can also be information about other consumers. Consumers like you um, uh, and, 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 the, and then information about how they've behaved in the past what they've purchased in the past, what entertainment content, uh, content they've, they've consumed in the past, and so forth. And so all this information can be, can be harnessed to create, in, in the moment, a, 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 a shopping interface that is predicted to be most of greatest interest to you and most helpful to you. So it encourages me to buy more things. Perhaps. I mean, it, it, it does a whole bunch of things. Um, uh, it can also help you... Um, make better choices. Um, it it can also uh, be more efficient uh, and uh, save you a lot of effort and energy that you might otherwise have to spend locating the products that that are of interest to you and then kind of serving them up to you uh, in a very smart, intelligent, and data driven way. Thanks for this, Gerald. 
I know your research has interesting aspects for consumers and for firms. Can you tell us more about how your research serves both these entities? I'm interested in understanding the psychological forces that govern behavior, as you said very, very accurately in your introduction. And so I'm interested in understanding how stuff works. I'm interested in understanding what motivates and demotivates consumers, what helps them make better choices, what gets them to act versus not act. But I do so with an equal interest in the consumer and the consumer's well-being as I do with an interest in helping firms be better choice architects. I recognize that there is a, um, uh, an interesting interplay uh, here between the interests of the firm and the interests of the consumer, which sometimes align but don't always align. And, um, and I think uh, the findings from my research can help inform consumers, uh, maybe point out to them some vulnerabilities, some areas where they may be susceptible to unwanted influence by others. And, uh, and I find that very gratifying and being able to educate consumers and also policymakers about domains where maybe consumers must be protected uh, against um, influence. And, uh, but you're right, there is also the, 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 the corporate side, the firm side, and clearly um, these AI-driven personalized shopping interfaces could in principle be used, I'll say, against the consumer uh, or, you know, to, to get consumers to, uh, to influence consumers in mm -hmm. ways that serve, uh, serve um, perhaps retailers or, or, or other corporate entities. So, so there, there, is, there, is a, there is a tension there. Firms seek long-term relationships with their, with their customers. And so uh, one key to long-term corporate success really is to be helpful to consumers, help consumers make better choices and not just take advantage of them in the moment, um, but rather assist them genuinely, help them find the products that they truly want, not just the products that the firm maybe wants to sell in the moment. It's a good point, and it seems to me that an important concept here is the fit, and the fit between the consumer and the seller, um, in that uh, we want consumers to actually buy things they're happy with in the longer term. So I can I see that you're you're talking about the balance is an important concept that um, is very uh, kind of energizing and intriguing about the kind of research that you do. Let's talk a little bit more about, we mentioned you have a program of research and, and how you might think about the importance of having a number of things that you do over your career as a researcher. Can you talk a little bit about the way in which you've moved and brought together different projects over time? I think it's, it's, it's the curiosity that, that, that's, that's really driving it. Um, for every project, but that curiosity gets applied to a sort of um, an identity that I have as a scholar that um, um, is, you know, is organized around certain key themes and theoretical perspectives and 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 kinds of phenomena that 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 seem to show up. So, so that even though you know nobody, in my opinion, really plans a. A research program over a decade or more and, and, and maps it all out and says, okay, and now this is what I'm going to do. Things, at least in my experience, just tend to kind of happen. You know, we get curious and interested in one thing and then we study that and that leads to something else, um, but not in a 
completely planned or predictable way. And, and in a way, this makes research also interesting and exciting, I think. I think exciting is a good word. And to be able to look for the next thing sounds like you've um, enjoyed that through your time as a researcher. As we're coming towards the close, I know that you work with a number of doctoral students and that you are meeting with them when we have conferences, for example. And what kinds of things would you share to a junior scholar as people who are getting started with their research? So first of all, you're right. I, I, I find it extremely rewarding and gratifying to work with, with, um, with young scholars, but in particular with, with uh, junior researchers and, and, and PhD students. What advice I have is, um, well, like I said, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a lot to be said here, but I think one is really to uh, recognize that being able to do basic research uh, in, a, in an academic setting is really a privilege. And, um, but, it, but it's also a responsibility. One piece of advice that I have is to really find out what you're most passionate about. And, um, and uh, amongst, so there's so many things we could study. Uh, and it's a, it takes us back a little bit to, to what we talked about earlier, where consumers have so much choice in terms of the products. In a way, as researchers, we have so much choice in terms of what questions we want to study. But not all questions are equally important and equally interesting. And uh, so I think um, um, discovering one's own uh, identity as a researcher and figuring out what we're most curious about uh, is really important. And you know, we talked about curiosity a, a, a little bit already, but I find that um, our own curiosity is a really important motivator in research. There are extrinsic rewards for research, and you know, you know, as, especially as a doctoral student, you are expected to produce, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's an outcome-driven uh, activity. But I think along with that, there needs to be that intrinsic drive as well, that 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 genuine curiosity, so that we're doing the research. Um, not just to you know contribute to the field and write papers, all of which of course is important, but also that uh, to remind ourselves that research, in my opinion anyway, is also meant to satisfy our own personal curiosity. I think that's a really good thing for everyone to remember is the curiosity and passion that needs to be there. And clearly that's evident in your work and in, in talking with you today. So it's been a real pleasure um, I'm, I'm glad you were able to join me, and uh, I, I just say thank you for doing that. Uh, thank you, Trish. It's been my pleasure, and uh, it's, been, uh, it's, uh, it's been fun to, uh, to talk about research. And now, to close this episode of Speaking of Research, I'll remind you that I'm Professor Trish Ray at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. Thank you for listening.